Sometimes the Christian life can be discouraging, can be confusing. Sometimes it just gets really lonely. And to be honest, sometimes it just seems kind of boring. Would it matter to you this morning if you knew that Moses and Abraham and Rahab and Paul and Peter and John, the great heroes of the faith, were actually cheering you on as you run your race, challenging you, inspiring you, cheering you, not as spectators, but actually as teammates. As teammates, they have run their race, they have passed the baton, and now they're wanting you to run your race as well as they ran theirs. Would that matter to you if you knew that? Well, that's what we want to talk about this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with us to Hebrews chapter 12. Almost all commentators agree that the chapter division, the end of 11 to 12, is just very unfortunate there. As you know, the chapter verse divisions are not inspired. They're put there by editors, and pretty much everybody agrees this is uh, not a good break. Chapter 11 is about these great heroes of the faith. Not only did they live by faith, they died by faith, having never seen the promise fulfilled, but believing with all their hearts that God would keep the promise. They consider themselves aliens and strangers on earth. They're unwilling to settle for this world. They're headed to somewhere better. They see it and welcome it from a distance. And they long for the day when they will see the promise fulfilled of a better city, a heavenly city. But the text ends in chapter 11 telling us they're actually still waiting. The believers of the first century, they're still waiting. What are they waiting for? Well, they're waiting for us. They're waiting for us. We've taken the baton. Now it's our turn to run. And they're cheering us on to victory. One day when we pass, we will join them and we will wait until Jesus returns. And he ushers in the new heaven and the new earth. And we together as the people of God will enter the new heaven and the new earth forever. In light of that, chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, therefore in light of what we just talked about, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now that word sense is a very important word. Sense, what he's about to say is true, let us run with endurance. So whatever it is he's going to tell us is meant to inspire us. It's meant to challenge us. It's meant to move us to run our race 
to the best of our ability all the way until the finish line when we pass the baton and we take our seat in the grandstands. Now, there is disagreement on what exactly is meant by verse 1. There's good and godly people that sit on both sides of this issue. I'm just going to explain to you what I think makes the most sense. Now, there is widespread agreement on a lot of the imagery in verse 1. So when he says, so great a cloud of witnesses... It's unusual language for us, but it simply meant a host of witnesses. But it was more than just a host of witnesses, the host of heroes from chapter 11, but rather it's creating the imagery of the Roman Colosseum. And the clouds of witnesses are describing the row after row after row of people in the Colosseum up to the clouds, watching the runners run their race. New Testament uh, Greek scholar A.T. Robertson describes it like this. The metaphor refers to the great amphitheater with the arena for the runners and the tiers upon tiers of seats rising up like a cloud. Now, it's important to understand pretty much everyone agrees with that agrees that this is the metaphor, this is the picture being painted here. When he says a crowd of witnesses surrounding us, again, that language is very important. He's not just saying these heroes of the faith have gone before us. He's saying they are surrounding us like a cloud, which again creates this imagery of a stadium filled with these saints of old, and they are watching the runners in the race. Where there is disagreement is uh, around the idea of whether or not these heroes of the past, whether or not those who have died in Christ, which could be your, your relatives, it could be your friends, your spiritual mentors, whoever it might be, Do they actually see us, at least to some degree, and cheer us on in the race, or do they not? That's where the disagreement is. So it's very common in kind of fundamentalist conservative circles like ours that people take a pretty strong view that once you die and go to heaven... And when we're talking about heaven, we're talking about what I refer to as the intermediate heaven. So if you die today, you go to this intermediate heaven. We're all awaiting the return of Christ and the new heaven and the new earth. So there's kind of this intermediate uh, period of time. And that's what we're talking about here. Many in our movement would simply say you cannot see what's going on on the earth. Period. End of sentence. So over the years, really since we did our Life After Death series, I've often asked my fellow preachers, theologians I know, what they think about this. It's interesting how many of them will say, well, no, of course you can't see what's going on on earth. To which I reply, what is the biblical evidence that supports that view of heaven. 
to which they just stare at me. It's very interesting how often we formulate very strong opinions without real biblical support. So I find myself asking, where do you get that view? Because I would suggest to you the New Testament suggests otherwise. And this is one of those classic texts. So to start with the term witnesses. So what does it mean that these witnesses that gather in the stadium, do they or do they not see? The term itself, the Greek word, is the word from which we get our English word martyr. But the origin of this term and how it was primarily used was the idea of an eyewitness, such as in a court of law or a spectator. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews uses it this way in chapter 10, verse 28, as an eyewitness in a court of law. That is the primary usage of the term. Now, over time, it evolved a little bit to also include this idea of being a testifier. And that's how it's used in chapter 11. It's not the exact same word, but it's kind of derivative of the term. So it's the idea that those great heroes of the faith gave testimony to their faith in God. They were considered witnesses. So now you get to chapter 12. The term in chapter 12, verse 1, is exactly the same term as chapter 10, verse 28, eyewitnesses. Now, if you're just reading the book of Hebrews, which is how the first readers would have heard it, they would have heard it read to them, it's about three to four minutes between chapter 10, verse 28, and chapter 12, verse 1. It would be very unusual for the writer of Scripture to change the definition of a term when it's used in that close of proximity. So if in chapter 10, verse 28, it meant an eyewitness, it's most likely what he's meaning by the exact same term in chapter 12, verse 1. In chapter 11, the term is a derivative of that, which means someone who gives testimony, which I think then also plays into chapter 12, verse 1. The idea is those who have given testimony in chapter 11 are the spectators. So in a sense, what he's saying is they aren't actually spectators, they're teammates. They've run their race. This is a relay race. There's no individual races. And as teammates, they have passed the baton. They're now in the stands, and they're wanting to cheer on their teammates who are now carrying the baton until we finish our race and join them in the bleachers. Now, that is the most uh, obvious meaning of the text. I want to read to you comments from a few commentators. I, I don't normally do this. But it is important that you understand what I'm suggesting this morning is not me out on an island all by myself. It's actually a view that is held by many, many, many Greek New Testament scholars. In the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, which is a large 
multi-volume scholarly Greek treatment of the language, the writers say this, the readers are represented as runners who have entered the arena. They make ready to run by laying aside everything that would impede them. Around them on the stands are the packed ranks of spectators, the cloud of witnesses, who with avid interest follow the course of the runners as eyewitnesses. Now what's interesting is then they footnote to the bottom of the page and make this comment. Expositors often resist this most obvious meaning of the text. But B.F. Westcott, in his epistle to the Hebrews, is forced to admit it is impossible to exclude the thought of the spectators in the amphitheater. William Lane, in his uh, commentary, the word biblical commentary, says, in the context of the athletic metaphor, it is perhaps natural to think of an amphitheater with its ascending rows of spectators who gather to watch the games. The participles surrounded by particularly suggest that they are witnesses to the efforts. Ben Witherington, in his commentary on Hebrews, says, In view of the running metaphor in our context, our author may be thinking of a crowd of spectators watching the race. On the other hand, who are these spectators? They are those who have passed on, being faithful witnesses to God. Our author says there is a great cloud of witnesses. David De Silva stresses that our author wants his audience to see themselves as surrounded by friendly and encouraging witnesses from the Hall of Faith, not hostile and violent neighbors wishing them well. Thomas Long, in the Interpretation Commentary, says the baton has been passed from Abel to Enoch to Noah to Abraham, each runner handing it on to the next. Now it is the congregation's turn to run. The previous runners have taken their seats in the stadium. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses we, uh, and are all watching to see how we will perform. One more, Leon Morris in his commentary in the Expositor's Bible Commentary says, perhaps we should think of something like a relay race where those who have finished their course and handed in their baton, are watching and encouraging their successors. So I could go on and on, but it is a widely held opinion by many scholars that there is some level of awareness by those who have gone before us, and they take their seat in the bleachers, so to speak, and they cheer on us as the runners who now have the baton. We're teammates. It matters to them. We're all in the same race together. Now, when we're talking about a metaphor, it's always possible to push a metaphor too far. Any metaphor breaks down if you push it too far. But we're not talking about pushing this metaphor too far. We're talking about the fundamental meaning of the metaphor. Everybody agrees that's the picture. So if it's true that the spectators can't 
actually see the runners, the metaphor makes no sense. If all the writer is saying is those who have gone before us somehow inspire us, then use a different metaphor. The whole point of the metaphor is there in the bleachers watching the runners run the race. That's the core of the metaphor. It's hard to imagine how it could mean something else. So think of it this way. We know for sure that the angels watch. We know that they see. There's a number of biblical texts that talks about the angels watching and the angels seeing. Sometimes when we think of heaven, we think of something like geographically out there somewhere. And maybe that is true. But a lot of scholars think it's not like that. It's more like a realm. So if you think of kind of tuning in a radio station, you have all these frequencies in the air, and you just tune one in, and then you tune another one in. It's more like a realm that is here that is, is kind of tuned in and tuned out. If you think of it like that, it makes sense. We have a lot of passages. The angels watch and see. We know that. Think about Luke 15, where it says, In the presence of angels there is rejoicing, Whenever a sinner repents, they obviously see and they celebrate. But you also have some very interesting passages, such as in 1 Samuel, when Saul is in trouble, he goes to the medium, uh, he, he calls up Samuel. Samuel seems to genuinely come back from the dead. And he gets into a conversation with Saul. If you go back and read that passage, Samuel is very clear on what Saul was doing before Samuel died. But he's also very clear on what Saul has been doing since Samuel died. Seems to be very aware of that. You have a similar dynamic when Moses and Elijah meet with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They seem to be aware of what's happening with Jesus, and they seem to be aware of what's about to happen with Jesus. One real interesting passage is Revelation chapter 6, where the martyrs are actually talking to Jesus about what's happening on earth. And they're bothered by what's happening, and they're asking Jesus, how long are you going to let this continue? It seems very clear that they see and are aware. That's the whole point of the passage. And it leads them to have this conversation with Jesus. What else is interesting is they seem uh, disturbed by what's happening, which does raise an interesting question. People would say, now, wait a minute. You can't really see what's happening on earth because there's no more tears, no more sorrow in heaven. Well, the martyrs seem to be genuinely agitated. And it's important to remember that the passage that says no more tears, no more sorrow, is at the introduction of the new heaven and the new earth and not before that. So here's something to think about. When you're absent from the body, you're present with the Lord. That's what the scriptures say. So you're in the presence of Jesus. So what would Jesus be most focused on in heaven? This idea that some somehow uh, we're kind of removed on a cloud just going on without any concern for what's happening on earth. What sense does that make? We know for sure that the focus of Jesus is on his church. 
His church is engaged in a battle. And until the battle is won, Jesus sits as head of the church, focused on the battle that's going forth. So if you're in the presence of Jesus, what would be your focus? What sense does it make that you would be off, not even concerned with what's happening on earth? Certainly in the presence of Jesus, you'd be focused on what Jesus is focused on. Now, this is not insignificant. Wouldn't it matter to you if you understood that these great heroes of the faith who ran their race so well have handed you the baton as teammates? They're not sitting in the bleachers as critics. They're sitting in the bleachers as cheerleaders to inspire you, to challenge you, to to encourage you to run this race to the best of your ability. When you fall, they're encouraging you to get up, get back on your feet, run. I think one of the most painful things that people can experience in this life is the death of a child. Over this past year, there's been several families at Brian who have lost children. It's just such a gut-wrenching pain. But wouldn't it matter to you if you knew that these children who have passed before you are actually in heaven, seated between Abraham and King David, and they're cheering and saying, Mom, run! Run this race! Don't give up! Don't roll over! Run! Wouldn't it matter if your child was saying, Run, Dad, run! I know it's hard, but get back on your feet and run! Run this race to win! Anxious for the day when you finish your race, you pass the baton, and you join them in the bleachers. But in the meantime, they're saying, run. What about a mom or a dad or a grandfather or grandmother, a spiritual mentor or friend that is already in the presence of Jesus? Wouldn't it matter to you that they are saying, run. You've got the baton. You've got to go for it. You've got to give it your best. You've got to run hard. Looking forward to the day when you pass the baton on and join them in the bleachers. But for now, they're saying, run, give it your best. I mean, doesn't that inspire you to run, to take your baton, to run your leg of the race and do the best that you can? It's hard to understand how this metaphor could mean anything but that as that is the clear and obvious meaning of the metaphor. He says, since that is true, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily tangles us up. An encumbrance would have been anything that kept them from running at their best. The actual Greek word related to an athlete would have included body weight. So if you're overweight, the idea would be lose the weight. It's an encumbrance so you can run the race better. It would have included clothing. They didn't run the race with a robe on. As a matter of fact, as strange as it may be to us, the Greek runners ran naked. They lost every item of clothing to not be encumbered so they could run. It's interesting when Paul is writing to the Galatians, he actually uses this language and says, you were running so well. What hindered you? Answer, legalism. 
It was the bondage of legalism that caused them to be encumbered and not run the race well. Whatever it is that encumbers us, it's not necessarily bad things, it's just not the best things. What gets in the way of us running the best race we possibly can? The sin that so easily entangles us is talking about any sin that basically just ties us up. Imagine trying to run a marathon with your shoelaces untied or having some rope wrapped around you and it keeps falling down around your ankles and you're trying to manage the rope. That's what sin does to us. Sin makes us selfish. Sin makes us self-focused where every day that's what we're thinking about. We're not really thinking about the race. We're not really thinking about running well. We're just trying to manage this rope that's all over our legs and ankles and try not to trip. Think how different it would be if we had a passion for righteousness. We're not tangled up in our sin. We're full speed ahead with a passion for righteousness, seeking to run the absolute best race we can run. Let us run with endurance. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. The race that is set before us. It's very interesting language there. Carries the idea that each of us needs to run our race. I don't run your race. You don't run my race. We run the race set before us. Now you can wish all day long that your life was different, but it's not different. It is what it is. This is your life. What would it look like to run hard today? What would it look like to run hard tomorrow? What would it look like to run hard the next day? Don't make this more complicated than it needs to be. But this is your race. It's possible the runner before me had a 100 miles of flat, grassy uh, grassy parkland. And my leg of the race is a swamp. If that's the case, then run. Run your race to the best of your ability. This was the discussion that Jesus had with Peter in John chapter 21. Jesus is risen from the dead. He meets uh, Peter at the Sea of Galilee, gives Peter a recall back to service, and he tells Peter what kind of race he will run, tells him how he will die. And Peter says, well, what about these guys? And Jesus says, Peter, it's not your race. It's none of your business. Don't worry about that. You run your race. So run the race set before you to the best of your ability. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. It was common for the emperor or people of significance to be seated in boxes at the finish line of the Colosseum. So when you came through into the Colosseum, you fixed your eyes on the emperor and you ran to the finish line. This is capturing that imagery. Eyes fixed, focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. This is language we've had before in the book of Hebrews. Author means pioneer. It means trailblazer. We're not blazing our own trail, but we're following Jesus who has blazed the trail, who has conquered sin and death once and for all, who's ushered in a better covenant with better promises, with a better hope that leads to a better city. He's the way. We're following him. He's the trailblazer, the pioneer, the the 
perfecter is the completer. He's going to complete his promise. He's going to fulfill the promise. And we all together as teammates enter into the new heaven and the new earth together. It doesn't say the perfecter of our faith. If your translation says that, that is incorrect. It's just the perfecter of faith, meaning the body of doctrine we believe to be true. Everything we've learned in Hebrews, that's true. Jesus is the trailblazer. He's the pioneer. He's the one that's going to fulfill his promise and get us to the heavenly city, to the better city. Therefore, we fix our eyes on him full speed ahead. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's not that Jesus found joy in the cross. It's Jesus found joy in knowing what the cross would provide. God loves his children. His children were lost with no hope. Jesus, in fulfilling the promise, would make a way back that his children could join him in the new city forever. So with the joy of knowing what he was about to accomplish, Jesus went to the cross. He endured the cross, despising the shame. It's hard for us to imagine just how horrific the cross was in the first century. To us, it's just become so much of a religious symbol. But in the first century, it was just filled with shame. It was a horrific way to die, but not just because of the physical pain. It was because in a shame-honor culture, the last thing would be the most shameful thing you can imagine with no chance to ever regain honor. And in that culture, that was a horrific thing. Jesus would face into that, despising the shame, basically saying, even though that was true, it wouldn't stop him. He would endure the cross, having accomplished the mission, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We've talked about this many times in Hebrews. Indicative of the fact the mission has been accomplished. The work has been done, so he was seated at the right hand of God. Verse 3, for consider, it's a mathematical term, calculate, factor, him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Basically, the idea is calculate, factor, figure what they did to Jesus as the pioneer, the trailblazer. Therefore, if you're going to follow this trail, you should not be surprised that it will be hard. It will be lonely. It may, uh, it may involve persecution. These first century readers were headed into severe persecution. If they think this is going to be smooth sailing, they're going to get discouraged and give up. Those last two terms are terms used of runners. Not grow weary and quit is basically what it says. This goes back to this whole idea that when we trusted Christ as Savior, we did not board a cruise ship. We boarded a battleship. Preachers 
People that share the gospel do people a great disservice when they convince them if you come to Christ, it will be smooth sailing. Welcome to the love boat. Because it's devastating when people start shooting. It's devastating when the torpedoes start coming and you think, what's going on? Why are people shooting at the love boat? The problem is somebody didn't tell you the truth. When you came to Christ, you boarded a battleship. Calculate, factor, figure what happened to Jesus. And realize Jesus said, if they did that to me, they're going to do that to you. This race isn't easy. It's hard. It's lonely. It can get confusing and painful. But you have to know that the saints of old are gathered in the bleachers of heaven and they are cheering. They're challenging. They're inspiring. They're not spectators. They're teammates. They ran their race with great courage. They gave it everything they had. They laid down their lives. Many of them died for the cause of Christ. Now they've handed you the baton and they're saying, run. Run, don't jog. This isn't the love boat. This is the ultimate race of life and you have to take your baton and run like you mean it. As we talked about in the Peter series, this is the ultimate battle that ultimately God wins. I don't want to be a spectator. I don't want to be on the bench. I want to be on the field. I want to be beat up. I want to be bloodied. I want to know that I did my part in order to experience the fullness of the victory to come. Those who have gone before us have run courageous races of faith. And now they've passed you the baton. And they're saying, run, run, get back on your feet and run. Paul says to the Corinthians, if you're going to run, run to win. If you're going to run, run to win. May that be so of us. Our Father, it's just hard to imagine how the saints of old would even care about our leg of the race. But God, you care. And in your presence, they care. They're not spectators, we're teammates. They're wanting us to run the very best race we can run. Until that day when we together enter the new heaven and the new earth. Lord, find us faithful with all that we have to run our race until it's our turn to pass the baton and to sit with the saints of old and cheer on the next generation of runners. God, may we run to win. In Jesus' name, amen.